Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop talks about the relationship between science and religion, including evolution and the origin of man. Then it's on to questions submitted by listeners on topics including Saturday evening masses and whether or not masses should be celebrated facing the East or ad orientum. Coming up on today's episode of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop back from a big retreat. It's good to see you again. Good to see you, Kyle. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How was your retreat? It was excellent. You know, um, I don't know if you ever heard of Father Raniero Cantalamesa. Yeah. The papal preacher for several decades. He's a Capuchin, Italian Capuchin priest. He gave the conferences, and and they were really superb, theologically and spiritually. It really exceeded my expectations. I, I thought it was a wonderful week. And for those that missed us talking about this in the past, this was a retreat that Pope Francis had organized for well, the Well, Pope Francis asked if we would all go on retreat together, uh-huh. given all the problems of you know, 2018 and uh, the sex abuse crisis. And he suggested it, and he's the one who asked Father Cantalamesa to direct the retreat. And uh, I don't recall doing a retreat earlier in my life at the beginning of the year, the first week of January. Hmm. But what a great way to begin a new year. Yeah. And I love the themes. He he talked a lot about the... um, using the scriptures and the fathers of the church, especially St. Augustine, talked about the uh, vocation of a bishop. And he he really used a verse from Mark's gospel as the overall theme, which talked about how Jesus called the apostles to be with him and Hmm. then sent them out to Mm -hmm. preach the gospel. So a lot of his first talks were on what it means to be with the Lord. So it was beautiful. I mean, about prayer, about celibacy, about um, different aspects of, of the priestly life and the, and the life of a bishop, just uh, what it means to, to be with the Lord every day. 
and then he talked more about mission and our responsibilities and preaching, et cetera. And he began each uh, conference with a, uh, a verse from the Veni Creator Spiritus, the Come Creator Spirit, the beautiful mm-hmm. prayer that we sing at ordinations and just profound insights. He, he talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. He's, he's charismatic himself and some very profound reflections on, on the Holy Spirit and his presence in our lives and the life, life of the church. Another thing I appreciated was um, our lunches were in silence hmm. and then dinners were, you had the option of being in, going to one of the rooms where it could be in silence, well, really half of the dining room. And I chose that. I just think that really helps to keep that uh, atmosphere of a retreat where you're not interrupted by a lot of conversation in that. So I appreciate that, maybe because I'm an introvert, but <laughs> I just love the idea of just having those days without any any noise, without where I could just focus on the Lord and, and be with Him. First of all, I think this is the first time in a year and a half of doing this show, uh, you mentioned that you're an introvert. <laughs> I am. Yeah? Because, you know, an introvert is someone who who, who gets kind of exhausted when he's with people a lot. Right. So, yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize, for me, it's a stretch. Yeah. Naturally, I kind of like to be in a corner reading a book, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But as a bishop, I have to be out with people. No, I love people, you know that, but... Yeah, it takes more energy yeah. for me. Like after masses, greeting everybody or going around in a crowd, huh. that's uh, that takes a lot for yeah. me. Yeah, even though I love the people, you know, I am more of an introvert. Yeah. Well, getting back to the retreat, uh, I think the not talking so much kind of fits the spirit of it being a retreat more than a conference where you're, there's an agenda where you're trying to decide something or come up with something. It was really focus more on the spiritual and some of the articles that I read said that we didn't walk away with answers, but they were kind of describing it as like a direction. Like this is what we need to do now. Yeah. I felt that the liturgies were beautiful. Every time I went to the chapel to pray, there were a lot of bishops praying, Mm -hmm. just seeing, you know, going to confession, Hmm. um, just being with my brother bishops in that setting. It was just great. You know, I could look around and say, yeah, we're all trying to serve the Lord. We're, we're weak men. We're all sinners, but yet we're all there, and we know that without Him, we can do nothing, as Jesus said. You know, um, so it was just good to be there in prayer together for for a whole week, and we weren't discussing business. Um, you know, and, and Mundelein Seminary was a perfect setting in Chicago, outside Chicago, because there were places to walk and get a little exercise and. Um, and pray while walking, etc. So yeah, everything about it was good, I thought. And really, as I said, exceeded my expectations. I have been reflecting even since on some of the talks that Father Canta La Mesa gave because he, we had got copies of them, which is great. Um, huh. And I've had, to, I have several of his books. I've read Father Canta La Mesa. It's, it's kind of deep theology that's uh, very tied to spirituality and just a lot of great insights. Um, his own experiences, being the papal preacher for John Paul II, for Benedict XVI, and now for Pope Francis. I mean, he's pretty good pre- resume. <laughs> yeah, he gives the annual, uh, you know, an annual talks to the Curia, and yeah, so he he really is a man who you can tell is, and there's a joyful spirit about him too, mm. but truly a man of God. Yeah. 
anything that inspired you to start doing or change or uh, any ideas that you got from the retreat? Yeah, I mean, I think it just um, gave me some new light, I would say, for my own prayer life. It kind of brought me to some of the things from St. Augustine. He would bring in a lot of of St. Augustine's thinking on mm-hmm. different things. And so it's kind of made me want to read more of of the commentaries of St. Augustine and some of his homilies, which I've actually started to do. Huh. Um, so I think that's a very concrete result. I think also just a, a recommitment to my vocation. I mean, I think that's anytime we go on a retreat, whether it's you, Kyle, you go, you, you're, you're recommitted to your vocation as a husband and a father. And I think that's what happened to me as a bishop. I'm recommitted to my role as a spiritual father in our diocese. Yeah. Moving forward, what is next for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops? Well, our next um, plenary assembly where we're all together is not until June. Our June meeting will be in Baltimore, but there are committee meetings, and I'm on the administrative committee, and I'm also the chair of the Committee on Doctrine, so those two committees will meet in, in March. But as far as what's on our agenda, obviously continual, continuing to work on the sexual abuse crisis and but a lot of that's going to depend on the results of the February meeting right. in Rome, where the Pope meets with the heads of Episcopal conferences from around the world. I think that's like the primary issue that we're dealing with sure. at this time. And, but there's all the ordinary things also that we, that we have to deal with. Yeah. Well, moving on, we actually wanted to circle around to a question that you answered, I think, very well, but you said there's so much more to talk about it, so we wanted to give you time to to dig deeper into this. It was a fairly long question that was submitted by Jason Wardwell from St. Elizabeth and Seton Parish, and in it, he was saying, we're talking about evolution and Adam and Eve, believing in evolution, his understanding that it was okay as long as you believe that evolution was the work of God. Uh, also, his understanding was that the church teaches that Adam and Eve were actual people who lived, not just fictional characters used to tell a story. Um, but then the, kind of the question of were Adam and Eve created as the first two people or were they evolved into people from quasi humans and instituted with a soul and all of these kind of questions that fall out from that. Then how did Adam and Eve's children reproduce and all of these <laughs> questions. So I know you wanted to come back to this topic and I've been looking forward to it. So I'm excited to learn more. You know, it's interesting. Uh, when I was on retreat with the bishops, even though I said it was in silence after one of the sessions, I went, uh, was walking with Bishop Barron uh-huh. and I started talking to him about this issue. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, I thought, oh, wow, okay, he, he's good. You know, he's an uh-huh. excellent theologian. But I think basically, um, let me try to set the maybe a general thing to say first because it has to do with the relationship between science and religion mm-hmm. or between reason and faith yeah. and one of the great things about catholicism is that we believe in the compatibility of faith and reason because mm-hmm. god you know is the author of all but anyhow those who claim that there's a conflict between science and religion or between reason and faith that's a myth mm-hmm. you know that we don't believe that as catholics you know there's there is no conflict conflict when each respects 
the proper domain of the other. Okay. So that theologians and believers, we we do respect the proper domain of science. I mean, some of the greatest scientists early on were priests. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the scientists should respect the proper domain of religious faith. Mm-hmm. And therefore, sometimes scientists could go beyond or have have teachings that that go beyond the scientific realm. It's really a philosophical position that they have. So we have to be careful of of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we believe that God ordinarily acts in and through nature, but that God can act in a supernatural manner. Miracles, for example. Sure. God is not part of nature. He is the creator. So regarding evolution. The church has never condemned evolution. As a matter of fact, if you remember, Pope St. John Paul II in a famous discourse once said that evolution is now more than a theory, Hmm. which I think is... Now, there's various opinions of how evolution occurred, so those are still theories, but, but the main point of evolution... I think science has shown us that it's it's more than than just a theory, okay. according to John Paul. But back in 1950, Pope Pius XII wrote a very famous, important encyclical called Humani Generis, and and he stressed in that encyclical that the central point for the Catholic faith is that the human spiritual soul is conferred on each human being directly by God. So that's an article of faith, that the soul isn't the result of biological process like evolution. Mm -hmm. But as far as the origin of the human species, uh, you know, the human body evolving from bodies of lower organisms, that's compatible Mm -hmm. with our faith. So even back in 1950, Pope Pius XII was saying that. Yeah. So when we look about, the, you know, and study the origins of the human species, this is not the domain of theology. This is the domain of biological sciences. Mm-hmm. And we need to respect that. And the Bible and our Catholic doctrine are not directly or primarily concerned with the workings of the physical universe, because there's various scientific theories. We do believe, however, that all things exist by God's wisdom and power, that God is the creator. So we reject what's called scientific materialism. Scientific materialism is a philosophy. It's a philosophy which claims that nothing exists except matter matter that's governed by the laws of physics. Okay. Scientific mat- materialism then is basically atheistic. Right. Okay, it's but that's not real science. That's that's philosophy. Okay. Um, the question from the listener about Adam and Eve, did they really exist? Does it matter to the Catholic faith whether they existed or not? I think it's helpful to go back to Pius XII and Humani Generis. Because at that time, scientists believed that the human race was descended from several original first non-human couples who were scattered throughout the planet. Hmm. That's 
what's called polygenism. Uh-huh. Polygenism. And Pius XII couldn't see how polygenism could be reconciled with the church's teaching on original sin, uh-huh. a sin that was committed by one couple, our first parents. So Pius XII didn't say absolutely polytheism is impossible, but he says it's not apparent how that could be reconciled okay. with what, it's, uh, what we believe from the book of Genesis. Since that time, scientists don't believe now, or I shouldn't say believe, or from their studies mm-hmm. in anthropology, et cetera, and fossils, and there's so many discoveries about the different um, animals which were evolving, et cetera, and that, that the first humans, rather than springing up in different places around the world, like in Europe or Australia or parts of Asia or the Middle East and Africa, It seems that the majority of scientists now say that, from their evidence, that the first humans didn't arise in different places, but arose in Africa. Okay. Which is very interesting, the out-of-Africa position. And I find this fascinating to study, because I was in Africa a couple years ago, and, and I remember, you know, seeing the at the museum in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, the bones of Lucy. It was actually a replica of the bones. They have the okay. bones, but they're not out for, for viewing. And, and, and now Lucy wasn't a human person. I mean, Lucy was one of the ancestors, so to speak, a non-human, what they call hominems, okay. uh, sometimes hominids. So she was more of an ape, but, but it was an important part of the development of the evolutionary process because... What was so significant is is she walked upright. Mm-hmm. Now, she probably did also, according to the studies, go around in trees, but also could stand upright. Mm-hmm. So it was an ape-like creature. But that's like 3.2 million years ago uh-huh. that her... Anyhow, I'm getting off the track. But that when I saw, when I was studying Lucy, it, it, it really did kind of get me reading more about this because I was yeah. fascinated by it. But But back to the issue of polygenism. The International Theological Commission, which is a, a group that is created by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome, uh-huh. several years ago, and back in 2004, and was chaired, by the way, by Cardinal Ratzinger, the future uh, Pope Benedict XVI, uh-huh. they published a statement on evolution that showed openness to polygenism. The commission said that the story of human origins is complex, it's subject to revision, and that's even true today. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of disagreements among scientists. The commission noted that physical anthropology and molecular biology combined to make a convincing case for the origin of the human species in Africa about 150,000 years ago. In a humanoid population of common genetic lineage. And then theologically, the commission said, Catholic theology affirms that the emergence of the first members of the human species, whether as individuals or as in populations, represents an event that is not susceptible of a purely natural explanation. 
hmm. and which can appropriately be attributed to divine intervention. Huh. It seems to suggest that both monogenism, that there's just one couple, uh-huh. Adam and Eve, but also certain types of polygenism remain viable theological opinions for Catholic theologians. Okay. So, I hope you don't mind if I'm going on too long. You no, can, this is you great. Can tell me. But why don't we take a quick break, and when we come back, continue this conversation about evolution. And if people have any questions, they could always submit them either via the website, RedeemerRadio.com, or by texting the Holy Cross College text line. But we've got more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman. We've been talking about evolution. And Bishop, you've been explaining it so well. I'd love it if you could continue talking about evolution and maybe how this fits in with the first rational human beings. You know, when you look at biological evolution, it was a really a 3.5 billion year process. Of course, we believe it in what would be called theistic evolution. In other words, all of this was directed by God to advance living matter until it was able to be informed by a human soul. Hmm. And as I said, this critical point in evolutionary history occurred probably 100 to 100,000, 100,000 to 150,000 years ago in Africa. And these were anatomically modern human beings who had advanced to such a degree that there were a handful of individuals who evolved with the neurocognitive capacity for language. That's a really important thing. These original humans were different. They existed and evolved in in such a way that they had this capacity for reasoning They had this capacity for abstract thinking, Hmm. for language, for self-transcendence. There's a... What do you mean by self-transcendence? Able to think about those outside of oneself and even to self-reflect. Yeah. Um, In other words, no longer just operating by instinct or... But actually being able to to think in in a way that was abstract as well as concrete. I love the way uh, Pope St. John Paul II, he gave a talk back in the 90s to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. And he talked about that, I call it a leap, you know, when we had these pre-humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he talked about that there was a moment in which there were different signs that showed that, okay, what this is different, you know, a specifically human life. And he spoke about self-consciousness, mm-hmm. self-awareness. Okay, now these, the apes didn't have that, right. you know? This idea of a moral conscience even, of religious experience, being able to reflect philosophically, mm-hmm. All these different things that make up what it means to be a human person. Basically, it would say a spiritual reality. Uh And of course, what do we talk about? 
we talk of that as the soul, right? the soul of the person. And there were various species, you know, you can read if you study this, there's homo and various stages in this process of evolution, homo erectus and homo habilis, and you go all the way up to homo sapiens uh-huh. or homo sapiens, homo sapiens, the knowing man. Okay, that's the human uh, person, okay, homo sapiens. As I said back in the 50s, they had this multi-regional model of human origins that, that these homo sapiens appeared in Europe and appeared in the Middle East and appeared in Africa, appeared in Australia, and it was kind of independent, independently arose. But that raises, raises a lot of questions because then how was original sin, you know, so, but the science has changed since 1950s, mm-hmm. and now scientists, there's there's a lot of evidence from genetic data and from fossils that really anatomically modern humans evolved in Africa, hmm. as I said, about 150,000 years ago, and that they migrated out of Africa about 60,000 years ago. Then they went, well, there were two routes, basically a northern route and a southern route. These, what we could call anatomically modern humans, lived alongside human-like, non-human, bipedal species, creatures called archaic homonyms by scientists. You've heard of the Neanderthals. Uh They would be non-human. They were up in Europe. The Denisovans, which were in Australia. Now, both of those have gone extinct. Right. Um, but there's strong evidence that there was probably some interbreeding, small amount, because 1% to 4% of DNA of human beings living today who aren't of African descent uh, is of, of Neanderthal origin or Denisovan. Huh. Uh, but anyhow, we could go on and on. Studies suggest that the, the anatomically modern humans in Africa there were probably about 10,000 breeding individuals that we know of, and that would account for the genetic diversity that we see among the 7 billion human beings living today, hmm. that there were about 10,000 original humans. Now, from how many did they evolve, That's we don't know at this point. But when I talk about these anatomically modern humans, were they human persons? They were not yet what we would call behaviorally modern human beings. Only later do we see these creatures, these anatomically modern humans, doing things like painting and creating music, carving, engraving speaking languages, right. uh, symbolic thought, all those things that really come with having a soul. Yeah. So we have at some point what, what some have called the great leap forward, mm-hmm. which is more like 75,000 years ago. That I think points to what we read about in the book of Genesis, okay? okay. The data also suggests that and this is really interesting, something I read about recently, that all human languages are derived from a single proto-language that dates to about 100,000 years ago in Africa, Central and Southern Africa. So we have this transformation from anatomically modern to behaviorally modern human beings. So you have the 
the evolution of the brain structure, the structure of the human brain, that would have facilitated the use of language. That's significant. When we look at uh, this transformation that took place, I would say it's critically important that this transformation can be understood to be archaeological evidence, scientific evidence, for the appearance of the rational soul in mm. the human, in human evolution. The arrival in history of the image of God. Yeah. The Imago Dei, the image of God, Adam and Eve. Yeah. So, I hope this is clear. So, you have this process of evolution, 3.5 billion years, uh -huh. directed by God to advance living matter until it was able to receive a rational soul. Hmm. A critical, the critical point occurred 100,000 years ago in Southern Africa among a group of these anatomically modern human beings when a handful of them evolved that neurocognitive capacity to serve as a basis, as a basis for abstract thinking and for language. It's God's infusion of the human soul. And along this line, these original humans, there was a, uh, an original sin. There was a rejection of God. Uh -huh. I don't see this as incompatible with what Genesis says right. about original sin. Now, does this mean there was just a single couple or multiple original parents? I think both, and according to what I read in the International Theological Commission, this is really a scientific question. You know, either could be compatible with our Catholic faith. An original couple, monogenism, or a handful of original couples. If it's more than one couple, now we know it wasn't in different parts of the world, it's pretty much clear from science that this was all in Africa. If it was more than one, you could say, well, how was original sin transmitted by propagation? Well, one or more of the original speaking Creatures could have, or humans, could have led their relatives to sin. That's one way of thinking. Now, theologians, I haven't been able to read a lot about this. One question, I don't know if it was from this uh, listener or someone else said, if there was one couple, wouldn't that mean that to propagate the species, there'd have to be incest? Right. And the answer to that is yes. You know, Thomas Aquinas wrote about this, that any theological account of a single original couple would have entailed sibling marriage, you know, mm -hmm. the brother and, and sister, the son and daughter of the original couple would have to have engaged in sexual relations to ensure the propagation of the human race. Right. Now, it would have been necessary, you know, to have sibling relations. Now, if there was a first community, that wouldn't have been necessary. Right. So it's interesting to look at that. There's also the question, I think this might have come from the listener about inbreeding between these first humans and their homonym contemporaries like the Neanderthals. Yes. You know? And uh, theologically, I think we'd consider that bestiality. Uh huh. But there was similar, sim there were similarities in appearance and behavior among these closely related homonym species. So there could have been some interbreeding and i think dna shows that there there was some okay um 
But anyhow, I think getting back to the relationship between faith and science, <clears throat> the question of biological origins is a scientific question. And at this point, I think the the question about polygenism and monogenism is, is not yet answered by science. Could the biblical Adam and Eve represent a number of our first parents? You know, possibly. But I think right now, I think more scientists, a lot more scientists, would say that all humans descended from more than one couple. From the evidence they have from the study of the human genome and all that, uh -huh. they would say that there's too much genetic diversity among human beings to say that there was just one original reproducing couple. Mm -hmm. But there are others who say, no, it would be scientifically possible mm -hmm. to have just one original reproducing couple. The church isn't, hasn't taken a stance it's been silent about the actual human pair, mm -hmm. Adam and Eve. But again, what does the Catholic faith oblige us to hold? It's that souls are immediately created by God. Original sin. It's a dogma of the faith. Uh -huh. And it was transmitted by our first parents. And... There was this primeval event that we read about in Genesis chapter 3 of original sin that man did at the very outset of his history abuse his freedom. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that of all those hominem species, the only one that remains is Homo sapiens, us. Right. We don't have Neanderthals or what, anything else. I mean, it would be interesting if we... if, if more people are interested in this. Uh, we should bring a scientist in. Um, yeah. But um, I'm just kind of been reading more and more about this. It's very complex. I find it very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. A, a slight variation on the question, getting into the idea of a tree and an apple. Do you think that that was an actual event that they were told not to eat from a specific tree, or is that just representative of them denying yeah. God's will? Yeah, I would say form? representative. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, this is so fascinating. <laughs> I, I love this, and uh, <laughs> we uh, probably need to move on here a little bit. So coming up, we'll have more right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and asking the questions that you've submitted, maybe you submitted them on our website, RedeemerRadio.com, or by texting the Holy Cross College text line. But our first question is, when did the practice of having a Saturday evening Mass in place of going on Sunday morning begin, and why? Also, when we say the Our Father at Mass, why is the Amen eliminated? You know, the first question, I, it wasn't long after Vatican II ended when Saturday evening Masses arose. Okay. Um, but it was left to individual bishops because um, huh. I think a lot of dioceses started in the 60s. But I remember the Archdiocese of Philadelphia didn't allow Saturday evening Masses until like in sometime in the 70s. 
because Cardinal Crow was the archbishop and he didn't allow the Saturday evening masses. But what they found through the years is all these people in Philadelphia would go over to, cross the river over to Camden. <laughs> They'd go to the Camden diocese yeah. and go to mass. And finally then he relented and started allowing the Saturday evening masses. But you know, the church has always seen that the celebration of Sunday really begins it's a 24-hour period that really begins on Saturday evening. That's why we would say when we would do Vespers on Saturday evening, it was the first Vespers of Sunday, even today. Okay. So it's not like new that we wouldn't see Saturday evening as part of the observance of Sunday. Uh-huh. So that's why you know Sunday Masses are celebrated on Saturday evenings, and one can go and any time after 4 p.m., I've set that as the the time where it would not satisfy the Sunday obligation to go to a Saturday mass at one. Which happens a lot of times with weddings. And right, things. and I get that question. Right. I'll get calls, Bishop, I'm going to a wedding on Saturday at one. Will that <laughs> satisfy my Sunday obligation? I say no. Right. You know. Now, if they went to a wedding at four, uh-huh. it would. Yeah. So interesting. But um, um, I don't think it should be any earlier than four because, I mean, that's pretty early <laughs> as it is. Yeah. And the other question about why not saying amen at the end of the Our Father at Mass, because really we don't, that prayer continues after the people say the Our Father, remember it ends, deliver us from evil. The priest then continues, deliver us, Lord, from every evil. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of continue with a, a prayer that's connected to it. So it doesn't end with deliver us from evil the priest continues, deliver us, Lord, from every evil and grant us peace in our days. And then it ends with the doxology, with the people saying, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and forever. Uh-huh. Is that the right wording? Yeah. Close. Close, okay. Yeah. For the kingdom, the power, power and the glory, glory are yours. <laughs> That's the people's part. <laughs> That's I, my part. Yeah. <laughs> I know my part. You know your part. <laughs> uh, so That's the only reason I can think of it, yeah, because it doesn't end with deliver us from evil. We continue with the priest prayer and the people's response. All right. All right. Darren Shortgan from St. Charles Parish in Fort Wayne asked, what is your opinion on mass being celebrated ad orientum? Are the priests allowed to celebrate mass in this way? Yes. Um, just in case some listeners don't know what ad orientum means, it means towards the east. Uh-huh. And as you know, a lot of Catholic churches, uh, and I think this is a great custom or tradition, were built in such a way that the altar faces the east because we have in Scripture that refer- reference to the Lord coming as the rising sun. We see that especially in Advent. Mm-hmm. We have things like O Radiant Dawn uh-huh. in addressing Christ and in addressing the Messiah. So the idea is the Lord coming from the east. Mm-hmm. And so we pray towards the east. That was very customary. And even the altars faced towards the east. Mm-hmm. And the priest would, in the uh, extraordinary form of the, of the Mass, in the Tridentine Rite, would, would face the east, and so would the people, all facing the same direction, ad orientem, towards the rising sun, right. to Christ, the radiant dawn. And that's legitimate. Priests still, there's no prohibition mm-hmm. from priests praying ad orientem. Now, it's very uncommon mm-hmm. nowadays. After the Second Vatican Council, it was allowed to celebrate Mass versum, versus populum, towards the people. Yeah. By the way, sometimes when they say, oh, 
father so-and-so is is celebrating mass with his back to the people uh-huh. when they do ad orientum that's not a good thing to say because uh-huh. it's really not to back to the people it's, it's to the east it's to christ the ra- radiant dawn so anyhow with the people with maybe the people. not, not yeah. turning his back on them but right. joining them yeah but some people i think you know you hear that right you know um but Versus populum, facing mass towards the people, is much more common since Vatican II. Mm -hmm. And it kind of reminds us of the Last Supper in the sense of of the the priests facing the people, celebrating together. But either way is legitimate and allowed by the church. Sometimes there's vehement controversy about this, which I don't think there should be controversy about it. Either one is Uh fine. I mean, versus populum towards the people is the more common thing. Mm-hmm. It's pro- it's not a good idea, I don't think, for a priest to come in where everyone's accustomed to the priest celebrating mass towards the people and then just abruptly changing because that, you know, people would need to be to understand what's going on. Right. There'd right. have to be some catechesis. Sure. And I'd want to be sensitive on how the people would feel about such a thing. There was a controversy, I don't know, maybe 2 years ago when Cardinal Sarah gave a talk in England. And he encouraged mass being celebrated ad orientem. Right. And was basically, he's the head of the Vatican Congregation for Divine Worship. The idea was, well, we should be, we should be all facing the East. Or uh-huh. He was really strongly encouraging it. But then, not long after, Pope Francis, or I think it was the Pope himself, kind of disagreed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's still a matter of some controversy, but... I would say uh, it's something that there shouldn't be a controversy about. I'll celebrate Mass, you know, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, I celebrate facing the people, versus populum. But there are times where I celebrate ad orientum. There's some churches, for example, St. Andrew's Church, or when I celebrate with the poor sisters of St. Clair, mm-hmm. the, the Mass is ad orientum. There's certain churches in Rome, for example, where... The way the altar is, you're celebrating ad orientum. Yeah. There isn't a possibility because the altar is attached to a wall or whatever to celebrate towards the people. Sure. Now, the others who would say, well, only ad orientum is right. That's not correct. Even in the early church or even in when the mass was celebrated ad orientum, if you were in some of the basilicas in Rome, you can see the altars are under baldacchinos in some of those great basilicas. And Mass was celebrated versus populum huh. uh, even before the Second Vatican Council. Okay. It, it depended on the, the architecture and where the altar was placed. Okay. Wow, that was great. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode. This has been very informative. I've learned a lot. And uh, I know we have... A bunch of students that are going to be going to the March for Life, actually a bunch of people from across our our diocese going to the March of Life, a bunch of them going to the uh, World Youth Day as well. So I thought maybe in our closing blessing, if you wouldn't mind offering up some prayers for those that are traveling. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I was just at Bishop Dwanger High School for a pastoral visit, spent the whole day, and they're bringing a lot of kids to the March for Life. And as a matter of fact, they're leading the whole National right. March. I was yeah. really excited about that. And I think there's 19 students from Dwenger going with me and other youth to 
World Youth Day in Panama. So it's great these two events coming up. So I'll give a I'll give a blessing to all those, especially, and ask everyone, all the listeners, to pray for our young people who are going to Panama or are going to Washington for the march. Right. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with kindness and give you his peace. And may he grant you safe travel and a wonderful experience of faith. May almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Has there been something theological you've always wondered about? Would you like Bishop Rhodes to answer that question on a future show? We're always looking for questions from listeners, including students, RCIA groups, Bible studies, Christ Renews' parish teams, you name it. Just go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You'll receive a notification letting you know your question has been received, and then look for another email letting you know when your question will be answered. Join us next week for another new episode. This time, Bishop Rhodes will reflect upon Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., hear his thoughts on Dr. King's life and what we can learn from it today, 51 years after his assassination. Then it will be on to Melchizedek. What do we know about him and why is he an important biblical figure? And as always, the show wraps up with Bishop Rhodes answering questions submitted by listeners. You can listen to Truth and Charity anywhere and anytime online at RedeemerRadio.com, through the Redeemer Radio app, or search for Truth and Charity anywhere you get your podcasts. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.